All right, here we all are. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Live Sunday night videos, Sunday fireside videos, I should say. My glasses clean. Oh, they're clean enough. How's everybody doing? Hopefully, y'all had a good weekend. <clears throat> all right, Scotty Sherry, Radio Free Mormon. Fine business operator, Peter Higgs, all you fantastic people, welcome. Uh, no, that wasn't a refrigerator. That was my uh, little bulletin board there, RFM. All right. Hope everybody had a good week. It has been a dandy of a week for me. I have a lot of stuff I have to share with you. I'm going to try something interesting on this particular production of Backyard Professor Productions. Whatever. I know. Shut up and talk. Oh, oh, all right. So, hey, Ruth Smart, welcome. Good to see you, Tim Rathbone. How you doing? All right. Let's, uh, Doug Vincent, yo, everybody's here. Looks like we've got a few people. Let's get this shindig on the road. We're one minute early. This is a disaster of magnitudinal proportions with which we will overcome. No problem. Got to make sure my, whoo. Computer doesn't fall over the end. This week in Mormon history, uh, a new development has arisen. And at first, I didn't, uh, I didn't pay too much attention to it the first day. And then the second day, I got looking into this, and I said, "Wait a minute this this is worth this is worth a discussion." So I'm going to be one of the very first video commentaries on this new historic development in early Mormonism, October 1841 specifically. An event occurred that is really interesting. Patty Cake, good to see you. Welcome, welcome. Uh, and and the more I got looked, now the thing is, I learned about this, I think on when was it? Wednesday. So I haven't had a lot of time to do any kind of exhaustive systematic study on it. I have been absolutely, I've been staying up late and getting up early in the mornings. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, I do sleep until six. So, uh, but no, I have been doing some extra study on some, on some contextual background ideas because of the way this particular document has arisen a newly discovered lawsuit involving Joseph Smith in St. Louis gives new insight into church history. Now, this is how the Deseret News put their title of this interesting document. And I said, no, it just gives you a chance to reinforce your own biases as you do here in your analysis. I'm not so sure what is more interesting to me personally. As, hey, Luvina, welcome, welcome. I'm not sure if it's a Dan Vogel, welcome. Good to see you again, as always, my brother. You're always welcome here, just like absolutely all the rest of you wonderful hoodlums. This particular document, I don't know if it's more interesting than the way the church attempts to portray it. What they do is they trot out one of their basic milk toast, whitewashed history canards 
in order to make it faith promoting. And I will share more on that, of course. Absolutely. So, uh, and yet the, the historical idea this is talking about, I went back and reread much of Michael Marquardt's materials, uh, a little bit of our Dan Vogel's. Uh, I have Leonard Arrington here, the Mormon experience that I've been looking into. Of course, the Joseph Smith papers. And of course, Richard Bushman, Rough Stone Rolling, and uh, Beam, American Crucifixion, and the William E. McClellan papers. I've got that also. That's by uh, Larson and Passy. I want to basically, what I'm going to do, rather than a systematic approach, because I just, <laughs> I haven't had the time, man. Uh, and for... For those who are just coming on, welcome, welcome. Uh, if Barry Richens is here, let me tell you right now, Barry, go to the YouTube version on Mormon Discussion, Inc. I'm not trying to separate you out and embarrass you, Bear, but uh, and over on the right-hand side, there should be a chat button on your screen. Just e either click on the chat or it should be there and you'll see the chat scroll up as they scroll up and there's a little long narrow bar there at the bottom put your mouse uh arrow in that and click on it and then you can chat with us here uh he was asking me he's asked me a couple of times and hopefully he's got access to the chat he wants to get involved barry and i have become good friends and he is chock full of wisdom and experience and knowledge he's in his 80s and he's been around the block four or five times. He has some wonderful ideas on the Book of Mormon I will be sharing here just shortly within the next few weeks. I'm going to start a Book of Mormon series that is going to be very fun and interesting. Um, and this lawsuit is really good. What I want to do is I will look. This is by Mary Richards. Uh, in October 1841, Joseph Smith sent some of his trusted agents. Now, this was 1841. This was three years before he was killed. And uh, this was during the rise of Nauvoo. And in 1841, they had already purchased the, uh, the reservation, so to speak, from Galland, a man named Galland, who was kind of a notorious scalawag. He was a scoundrel. Joseph Smith didn't know how to judge man's characters and the spirit didn't tell him to stay away from this guy, but he was able to buy this wilderness swamp that just about killed the whole bunch of the Mormons who moved in because of the malaria. It was more or less, it was horrible. They had to drain the swamp and all that, but they did build Nauvoo there. They broke their backs doing it, of course. 1841 was the big busy year where Nauvoo really, really got taking off and it got everybody excited. And he had sent the uh, several of the brethren, Brigham Young included, I believe it was Heber C. Kimball and Wilfred Woodruff off to Britain to do some missionary proselyting and thousands of people. They, they convinced thousands of the Brits to come over and join them in Nauvoo. And that was what helped build the population to where they were second only to Chicago. Uh, there are some 
uh, sources that I've read that say it, it got about to the same size as Chicago. But of course, this this caused all kinds of problems with their neighbors because of the policies of the Mormons that they didn't understand why everybody didn't see things like they did. You know, that's typical of Mormon history, right? That's Mormon history in a nutshell. Well, so he sent this guy, and this was George Miller. Now, George Miller was one of the Council of 50 members. Very, very important. Uh, hey, Randy Jordan, welcome here, my friend. Peter Higgs, did I say welcome to you? Good deal. I'm glad you're here, Randy. Good to see you again, uh, at least uh, your name. Uh, Randy was one of my longtime rivals on the Alt-Religion Mormon board. Now we're kind of uh, sharing information together, and uh, he's always welcome. So you guys are talking about food. Knock it off. I'm hungry. I'm giving you spiritual food tonight in the form of a wonderful discourse, not real food. Forget the chopped liver. <laughs> anyway, George Miller was the agent. 1841, they, he sent, now see, in 1841, uh, Joseph, they had built several of the houses from people who were coming in, and they bought the plots. Of course, Joseph reserved the best spot up on the hill for the temple. Yeah, you know, you have to have the temple overlooking everything. That has to dominate the landscape. And uh, Joseph was planning a store and a big house there. And so he was sending out people to gather supplies for him. George Miller went to south to New Orleans, Louisiana, and he got things like sugar, rice, molasses, and so on and so forth. On the way back to people in St. Louis, Missouri, whom Miller owed money, they sued him so that they could recover their debt because he wasn't paying his bills. Now, that's almost typical Mormon in that day, too. And they attached the barrels of supplies to the lawsuit, which means that the sheriff seized the goods. And Joseph Smith, of course, countersued, and he said, that is not that guy's personal property. That's the property of the Mormon church. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I apologize for calling it Mormon. Uh, the documents include depositions about church business and testimonies about the character of Joseph Smith and other church leaders. This is what interested everybody. What did these guys, what were they saying? It was only recently discovered as court archivists went through the old files and papers in the St. Louis court system. When I first saw it, I thought, that can't be the real Joseph Smith, said Bill Glankler, supervising archivist of the Missouri State Archives in St. Louis. Glankler said he knew somewhat of the early history of the Latter-day Saints in Missouri, but the court papers showed him how deep-seated prejudices were against the church and its members at that time time. So this is the old canard they always trot out. Well, everybody was prejudiced, biased. They hated the Mormons for no good reason. We're the victims. We're the ones that are persecuted, right? And that's how this article portrays this particular piece of historic information. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, I want to address that by looking into what was it that caused so many of the Mormon neighbors to mistrust and distrust and have their prejudice? Something caused that prejudice. What was it? 
That's what I want to talk about tonight. But first, I want to share this information and share some of the reactions about this information that I've been able to read online, which is extremely interesting. So looking at the depositions, here's what they claim. Hiram Smith couldn't be believed if he was under oath on anything involving Joseph Smith. Now, Glankler said it was a generic lack of trust which was based on their prejudice. That's what struck me. The value of that is an illustration that we know this. These are real people saying these things to be recorded in a court of law. So Glankler's staff connected with the history department in Salt Lake City, and they sent the documents to the church, Jeffrey Mahas, associate historian for the church history department, said this case had not been known about before at all. There's no mention of the case in any of other sources or in Joseph Smith's journals, nor is there a record of the case in Nauvoo. So this is new. This is what made it so uh, gum exciting. We're really grateful to St. Louis who reached out and sent us these images of these case documents. Not only does it give us more insight into how church leaders and members were perceived during that time, although we already knew pretty much with what we had, here's yet another piece of the puzzle. But it also gives another perspective of the business and dealings that Joseph Smith was part of in the 1840s in Nauvoo. Uh, In some respects, it does do that. That's true. So the The packet includes Joseph Smith's declaration that his attorneys submit to the court, and this starts the lawsuit. He hired the attorney team of Myron Leslie and Roswell M. Field as he worked to get the supplies back that had been purchased by Miller. Field later became famous for his representation of Dred Scott, the slave who sued for his freedom in a lawsuit that made its way to the United States Supreme Court in 1857. By that time, by the Dred Scott case, by that time, Brigham Young already had the Mormons in Salt Lake Valley. Joseph had been long dead. Uh, The packet also includes sworn testimony from people in Nauvoo who say they gave their money to Miller so that he could buy goods for the church, or they say they knew Joseph gave money to Miller. The names include uh, John Taylor, Hiram Smith, Orson Spencer, Henry G. Sherwood, Lyman White. Bill Mahas pointed out, the defense argument seems to be you can't trust any of these people. Well, and the cold, hard, brutal historic fact is they couldn't. But the church doesn't want us to know that, so they won't write it up this way. They are going on their experience with the Mormons for the past 12, 13, 14 years in various other states. And they knew that you could not trust the Mormons. There was a lot of problems involved that the whitewashed history of Mormonism, of course, left out, thinking that some truths aren't very useful, so they recontexted the history. That's one of the reasons why so many Mormons online, when Bushman's fabulous book came out, the Mormons thought it was another anti-Mormon book. They read this stuff and they threw it out. They said, forget that noise. That idiot's an anti-Mormon. They had no idea. What Bushman did to help change the narrative is he brought back in everything else that Boyd K. Packer so stupidly wanted taken out of the history, along with Marky Peterson and all those guys. The idiots did not know how to do history. And it came back and it's still biting him in the butt, properly so. So, 
Now, the witnesses for the defense were primarily former members of the church who left during 1837 and 1838. That's a very important time, too, because that was the Kirtland Bank fiasco era, right? Yeah, the real nasty situation. William Miller, Lyman Johnson, George Beebe, a shopkeeper in Keokuk, Iowa, which was just near uh, Nauvoo. And he was suspected of running a counterfeit ring. So there's a lot of antagonistic feelings here, they say, and a lot of anger. Essentially, their testimony is, you cannot trust the Latter-day Saint. You cannot believe a word they say. And what I want to explore tonight is why these people, uh, the Mormon neighbors, where did that mistrust stem? That's what I want to get at. They're going to, the church right now with this document, of course, is going to push that narrative because then they can turn around and say, see, these are just completely idiotic arguments in court. As it turns out, they weren't, very interestingly. I can't wait to see what the church write-up, they said they'll include this in the Joseph Smith papers. I can't wait to see what their write-up's like. That'll be fun. It's kind of shocking, he continued. It makes sense. It makes sense if you understand that these are the raw emotions of people who have recently left the church. <laughs> yeah, it does. There's real tension and bad feelings behind their testimonies. And what we want to know is, what was the cause of that? Is it just bias because the Mormons are Mormons, like this wants you to believe? Not even close. Nope. See, they're whitewashing the history again already by only giving you their quick first brainwash view to poison the well so that we'll never get out of that groove. Oh, well, these are just more biased, prejudiced, and Mormons. So we'll wait until we see what the Mormon historians mention about that. That's what prompted me to do this video because I don't buy that narrative at all. No, 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 no. I'll show you why. While under cross-examination by Joseph's attorneys, William Harris denied any prejudice against the church, yet Harris had written a book the year before attacking the religion. See, contradiction. You can't trust the testimonies against the Mormons because they wrote anti-Mormon books. But when you read the anti-Mormon books, it's anti-Mormon from the perspective that they weren't letting Joseph Smith get away with breaking so many laws and causing a disruption in their own cultural views. That gives you a different nuance and perspective that the church never quite gets to. Oh, and I say the church loosely. Uh, some, some historians, Richard Bushman, have come out and, uh, and beam... Beam in American Crucifixion, they do come out. Uh, and now we have the William E. McClellan papers. We have the uh, the Joseph Smith papers. And we've got the, uh, oh, let's see, where is it? Where is it? Yeah. And we have the journals of William Clayton. I should have left that one out. 
So we're getting a better nuance now so that the simplicity of, oh, well, they're just prejudice has to be shelved for now and say, you know, that's the last thing we want to say. Let's explore the intricacies of the actual historical situation, which Mormonism does not want you to do. They want to keep us believing in the whitewashed narrative. And so they're whitewashing this into the whitewash narrative, making it blase and bland, and oh, we already have the answer, etc., when in fact, they don't. So, see, a court action is by nature adversarial, he said. You have folks suing other folks. You start to learn about their political relationships. Aha, that's key, the political relationships. There are reasons why people are antagonistic toward the Mormons and their ridiculously idiotic theodemocracy views. Yeah, it's not just prejudice in order to be cantankerous. Uh-uh, they have very good reasons. You have their economic relationships, another clue right there. Economically, the Mormons just disrupted everywhere they went. And I'll share some of that. Their social, <laughs> the social relationships, the Mormons were downright heinous with this, with their polygamy. Yeah. No kidding. And that in turn tells you about the legal culture and the way Joseph Smith tried to combine church and state in the Council of the 50, which Richard Bushman incidentally has a great chapter on that. Really, seriously, it's an excellent uh, overview of the Council of the 50. But even that is atrocious. The political and social culture of the county in which those files existed. Yeah, they were burned in those relationships, and that's what gave them their seething anger. They weren't just angry because they were jealous of Joseph Smith's spirituality. See, that's the church's narrative, and that's bunk. So we have to piece it all together with a historical perspective. And what was Miller doing? This is another good question. And which hat was he wearing at the time? In the 1840s, he was the Bishop of Nauvoo, this George Miller. He was a financial agent for the church. He was the president of the Nauvoo House Association. And he was running a lumber mill in Wisconsin, which was bringing lumber down to help build up BYU. Nauvoo. Yeah, BYU, Nauvoo, it all sounds the same. Joseph argued in court that Miller was his agent when he bought the goods, but others said he was working for the Nauvoo House Association. So here we go. There's no real clear demarcation and understanding, and there were some people who were contradicting Joseph Smith. We will find tonight that there are many, many, if not in all instances, people who were contradicting Joseph Smith, not because they were antagonistic against him, but because he was caught lying his fool head off. True story. Yeah. So this gets tense. This gets intricate. 
for the saints, you would be hard-pressed to find a dividing line between all of it. These are wrapped up together, yeah, from the Mormon point of view, but that causes problems also. So, after six months of the initial testimonies, John C. Bennett showed up, and he, he was quite antagonistic against the church. He went to St. Louis, and he also testified against the saints. Very interesting, isn't it? And this seems to be the death knell for the case. Interesting. John C. Bennett, and they dropped the case. They said, oh, no, it's a non-issue. The defense attorney submitted Bennett's testimony in September 1843. So, see, it's been ongoing for quite a while. The event happened two years previous, and the, the court was moving slowly. And Joseph's attorneys stopped their work on the case because Joseph Smith decided it was not worth it. Interesting. I've got some interesting comments on that angle. Or else the attorneys believed they were not going to win. So it was declared a non-suit. The goods were long gone by that point anyway, of course. And neither Joseph Smith nor George Miller got the property back. There's a record in the file asking it to be sold before it spoils. And I can only speculate that's what happened because there's no other information about it. So anyway, what happened in the past makes us who we are. And we need to know what that was. Now, that's a good historical take. That's what uh, history is full of warts, like I say. When we look at history, we should see all of it, including the warts, because it all worked together. Yeah. Uh, would the Mormon church would finally figure that out and try to do something toward that end. They're getting better with the Joseph Smith papers, but they're not there yet. They've still, they've still got the historians wrapped around their little celestial pinky. Which is too bad. But it's okay. This is the age of the internet where we get to embrace the more realistic context. So uh, I got online and read a few responses to this. One of the responses was in, in quoting the article that said it was a generic lack of trust, which was based on their prejudice. The comment here is, but why? Because in typical fashion here, the church newsroom seems to want to claim the victim slash persecution position and not look any further. That's correct. I'm not trying to say there aren't biases, but sometimes they are earned. That is also an excellent point. Another comment says very similar to the JFK and the Mitt Romney uh, ideas on loyalty. There are stereotypes that get earned, right? Yeah. You got to read the originals. If they're trying so hard to paint it as prejudice and interpret the documents for church members, which I suspect is what they're doing, I can almost guarantee that there's something in those papers that they don't want members seeing for themselves or forming their own conclusions about. Now, what causes this particular doubt? What causes this particular skepticism? Because this is what I was thinking also. Well, isn't it not based on our experience with the church and its own history? Absolutely. 
In my teenage years, had Bushman wrote this, he would have been absolutely excommunicated. It would have been like reading Gerald and Sandra Tanner or Walter Martin. We would have been told not to read this book on pain of excommunication ourselves. We would lose the spirit. The devil would tempt us, etc. You know, they think all they have to do is label something and then they can control the narrative. They used to be able to do that, yes. But the reason we now say you have to read the originals, what's so important about that is because we do know and we have boatloads of evidence that all of those originals have been tampered with by church leaders down through the last couple of centuries. And that's why the Joseph Smith Papers is such a big whoop to do. That's why publishing the William Clayton Journals is now really critical so that we get first hand information. Hopefully the editors didn't do any squirrely work in editing out stuff that they didn't like, which in some cases is the case. Uh, you know, they started doing lives of the early Mormons. Uh, they did a book on Sidney Rigdon and, and uh, they've done a book on Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris, you know, Brigham Young, my goodness, he's got dozens of books and all that. But every one of the editors, if they were Mormon, were careful to skip the controversial parts or put in just enough historical context to give it a flavor of here is a true prophet of God whom you can trust. That was the only thing the church wanted you to come away from reading their historical narrative, which is far too simplistic and sophomoric and ridiculous, right? So this is the idea. Our own skepticism is based on what? Our experience with the Mormons and their historians. Well, early on, the so-called prejudice, the anger against those early Mormons, Hiram Smith cannot be trusted no matter what, etc. Well, they had their reasons for saying that, even in court, right? So, yeah, that sounds about right. So this court case had nothing to do with religious beliefs. This is another comment. It's about a Mormon who ripped someone off and he got caught and they made him pay. There you go. What was, uh, what was George Miller doing in this guy's debt? Was he ever going to pay him off? Probably not. That's why they confiscated the goods. If you can't get him to be honest, then take what he has when he's there. Yeah. I mean, he owed the money. See, this experience with Mormons who were always borrowing, and Joseph Smith was notorious for this, he always overextended himself. And then he was always in trouble financially. He was trying to squirrel away out of the obligation. He cheated people out of stuff. He, he manipulated dozens of people to try to do his own work for him to get the money that he needed raised in order to continue staying in Nauvoo, etc. I mean, he had economic debacle after economic debacle after economic debacle because he was just too ambitious, coupled with naivete. But a true prophet can't be that naive and uneducated, can he? He must have been guided by the Spirit of the Lord, and so he's a true prophet. Well, Joseph Smith always did claim, well, yeah, I, I have a revelation. Now, at last, we're going to build up Zion. He said that in how many different cities? Did you ever realize that not one 
of Joseph Smith's locations that he claimed God revealed to him would be the gathering place for all of Israel. Not one of those towns, areas, counties, or states ever worked in his lifetime. They lost every single one of them. Don't you find that kind of odd? Considering that God, they were wandering along in the wilderness trying to ask, what now? We've lost our property. They even put together Zion's camp and went marching back to fight the Missourians to get Jackson County, Missouri back, and they failed. But they were told by Revelation, Yea, go in the strength and might of the Lord God Almighty, and ye shall conquer. Zion shall flourish. We shall prevail, brethren. And they got their asses handed to them. They got wiped out by disease. They ended up murmuring and they were just a bunch of ragtag bunch of ne'er-do-wells. It was a hoax, totally. And yet every time behind every single economic enterprise, the Kirtland Bank situation, every single time the Joseph Smith papyri, Joseph Smith received assurances from God Almighty. And then you notice the pattern. And it is especially poignant in many of the history books. Uh, Joseph Smith, the First Mormon by Donna Hill. I've been reading that one also. Excellent text. Uh, Quest for Refuge uh, by what's his nose? Quest for Refuge by, uh, oh yeah, Marvin Hill, Donna Hill's brother. Excellent book. Every single time Joseph Smith received a revelation, it never panned out. 100% zero. Fail. Every time. And in the Liberty Jail, Joseph Smith found the perfect justification. He was asking, where are you, God? Every time you give me these revelations, I tell the people, I get them all hyped up. They get all excited, and then we lose our property. Well, that's where the prejudice comes from. But is it prejudice of the anti-Mormons, the former Mormons, or is it their experience who is saying, this guy keeps saying God reveals to him the truth, and then every single time without fail, it fails. What the hell would you do after the fifth failure in a row, having lost three of your houses, two of your kids, and one of your wives, and you have been tarred and feathered. And of course, Joseph Smith is going to utterly praise you, and he'll put you in the first presidency. He'll make you one of the apostles if you keep following his bullshit routine. Of course, he's going to praise you. Oh, you're a faithful brother. You're obedient. You will receive celestial glory. Hey, by the way, if you'll come with me upstairs in the locked room behind the, the closet door, I'll get you another wife. But shh, quiet. You can't tell anyone. 
So there's always going to be someone who follows after him and continues believing in him. At Kirtland, half the church left him because he outright lied about the bank. <laughs> he won. I don't think he began that with the intent of ripping people off. He speculated, hoping without knowing that he would get ahead and be able to build power. But it caved in on him because he was too dang naive. The thing the people recognized is, why do you keep claiming God is behind all this and he can't fail, but you continue to. That's enough to make me skeptical, sincerely. That doesn't make me wicked. That makes me skeptical. That doesn't mean I have a prejudice. That means I have experience. There's a big difference from the Mormon point of view. Oh, hey, they don't think like us. They don't like us. They keep running us out of town because we make life too difficult for them and we only trade among ourselves. And our religion and revelations are better than those evil, wicked apostates who aren't going to make it to the highest glory of the celestial kingdom, etc. I mean, everything they did antagonized everyone around them. And they wondered why they weren't so well liked. Well, duh, do you want a card? Do you want me to give you a quarter so you can buy a clue? And yet Joseph Smith just never could grasp that. Well, God in the Liberty Jail said, Joseph, my son, this shall be for your experience and shall be for your good. So God gives all these promises and revelations, etc., and then he doesn't carry through, and there's nothing but failure. But, hey, you had a great experience. You're smarter now and wiser. That only takes you so far, right? So that was another part of the, the huge problem with all of that. Another comment says, I believe that during this period, it was very common for Joseph Smith to hold church property as his own personal property. Uh, there is some truth to that. If not, if not that directly, uh, church property was the priority. And if people were going to donate and contribute to the cause, it was to the church uh, instead of to him. Either way, he ended up as a secondary recipient without question. So it helped him no matter what he was saying. Hang on. I think I got a message. Oh, nope, I didn't. So this caused serious arguments upon his death with regards to debts and assets. Yeah. Uh, on his death, there are some, uh, and I read this, I can't remember which one. I've got it marked somewhere where Joseph Smith's debt was $200,000. He was constantly in debt, going into debt, and always screwing over debtors and creditors and all that And because he was too naive. And he did it 
in the midst of persecution because, of course, from the other side's point of view, he was ripping them off. And there were many things he was doing that, if not illegal, was so unethical that it raised the ire of his neighbors. You know, the one story in the Kirtland Bank that just blew me away. Now, I have read somewhere, unfortunately, it was a Mormon historian who said this was a tall tale. Uh, and I can't remember the historic source. I've been looking for it. When I find it, I'll let you know. Where Joseph Smith, in order to convince people to invest in the Kirtland Bank, had that chest and it had gold pieces filled all the way to the top of that chest as the backing of the power of the bank. And yet those gold pieces were only two coins thick. Everything else underneath was just brick. So it was a very deceptive move on Joseph Smith's part to convince people. Yeah, And uh, Heber C. Kimball, I think he invested, he put in $15, which was going to give him back 15000 he thought. And Joseph Smith invested heavily in the Pratt brothers, et cetera. Well, he ended up having to back it up with real estate, not actual gold, so that when within just a month or two, the bank just collapsed because it was silly. Uh, those who got cashed out first did okay, but the solvency of the bank just failed instantly, more or less overnight. And then everybody else was left holding $3 bills. And that was seriously problematic back then, right? Just like it would be today. And it turns out that Orson Hyde, who tried to get the charter for the Kirtland Bank, failed to get the charter. They went ahead and then formed the anti-banking trust cooperative among all themselves anyway. A bunch of poor people wanting to start a bank, thinking the bank was going to make them filthy rich because, and this is the grandiosity that Joseph Smith also continually used as a way of convincing his people, one, that he was a true prophet, and two, that the enterprise they were about to get involved with again was really going to work this time because it kept getting more and more expansive, grandiose, magnifico. The kings and queens from the earth will come to our doorsteps. They will lay their gold and silver down at our feet when they realize we have the only true gospel of Jesus Christ that will exalt you. Your greatness here will be magnified in the heavens to where you will be above all of the others and the riffraff and your enemies dare not hinder or make afraid. And he just kept going with the deeper bullshit. And his followers swallowed it. No kings ever visited him. He did have a couple of state diplomats to Nauvoo once, right? Uh, but, I mean, th th this, this, what would you call it? Seriously, this egotistical, 
this this grand poopa of oh i am making the greatest city on earth and it will encompass all kingdoms i mean my god you know after a while you go joe stay whoa 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 dude calm down <laughs> you're really a nobody you have to realize that but it, it was this it, it was this his hope was grand i'll put it that way that's to put it charitable right that's about best i can give him so now we see this. Here's another comment on this particular thing. And we see this same cult behavior reflected in the statements of their peers, like in these documents. I don't think people trust the leaders of Scientology at large in society. They don't trust Warren Jeffs or his followers. You know, the fascinating thing about Warren Jeffs, you remember when he finally did get caught him and a few of his other so-called apostolic brethren. Remember that picture that just about made you puke when he had his arm around that very cute little 14-year-old girl that was his newest wife? And do you remember the uproar online that Mormons today made on that? You remember that? You remember when they were so vehemently angry and they were saying, Warren Jeffs is an apostate. He's doing that all wrong. And what was the response? They said, you silly Mormons. This is Joseph Smith just 100 years ago. You just see it now. And if you think the Warren Jeffs scandal is heinous, which it is, how can you possibly defend Joseph Smith? You're just seeing it for the first time in real live action right now. But that's the fruit of Joseph Smith's polygamy. And the Mormons were screaming, no, you're anti-Mormon, you're wrong, and all that. Well, we turned out to not be wrong, right? So that's the interesting thing. So they openly say, yeah, these guys aren't right. They will lie to protect themselves. Or and Jess did. Oh, we found many, many times in the history where Joseph Smith did, the Brethren did, especially in the Council of the Fifty. I mean, William Clayton, he's got it all recorded with Joseph Smith swearing everybody with oaths of death to secrecy. Yeah. And then it's in the Joseph Smith papers on the Council of the Fifty where they were constantly trying to overthrow the government in order to rewrite their own constitution so that they could have their freedoms the way they wanted. You know, they were being anti-constitutional more or less, starting their own society, and they were breaking the laws of the state and the nation, and then they were screaming persecution when everybody got mad at them. That's the narrative. That's the partial narrative 
that today's church is finally having to more or less let go of and say, okay, yeah, we've got to include all the rest of it in the Joseph Smith papers. Richard Bushman has properly said, the narrative doesn't work. We have to have a new narrative. And he has been seeking to develop that narrative. Well, the new narrative isn't really a new narrative. This is the book. This is the idea on the Mormon experience by Leonard Arrington. And his story in his very excellent biography, where are you, Leonard? Anyway, I've got it here. The Leonard Arrington biography. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, this is too good not to show you. The Leonard Arrington biography. Man, if you can, get this book. Seriously, The Historian's Adventure. Uh, the Writings of Mormon History. Arrington and those stupid, ridiculous politics involved with the enlightened brethren who knew the true history. The brethren don't know spit about their true history. What they do know is how to manipulate it. That's what they're good at. That has now bitten them in the butt. So they must come out with a little bit more realistic history. That's what they're forced to do. So the new narrative isn't a new narrative. The new narrative is it's time to begin to tell the total historical truth and let the chips fall what may. If you actually believed you had the truth, that's what you would have done in the first place, you dopes. I know that's ad hominem, but you dopes. What on earth... How can our prejudices of mistrusting you be labeled prejudices when we now have the historical accounts of how you've treated your own historians and forced them to cheat and lie about the documents and the manipulation of the history? How can you call us prejudice when we're skeptical now? Well, we're not anymore. We're doing the Joseph Smith papers. You get credit for that as far as that goes. But since you were forced into it, don't imagine all of a sudden we're going to genuflect at your feet and come back to church imagining you're going to tell us the total truth because we see the still same stupid stuff you're publishing for the chapel Mormons and we're not impressed. You're still whitewashing, in other words. Some of your historians are coming around, but that's why the non-member materials are so much more valuable these days because we now know that tanners were telling far more truth than we were ever told. You even lied about the critics Mormon church. You even lied about what they were saying. And all they were doing was producing the actual documents that now in the Joseph Smith papers, so are you. But you excommunicated them and you've called them apostates. What's that make you? True prophets? See, there's, there is a reason for our skepticism. And we feel that in the next 50 years, if all this stuff comes down, you're not going to be justified in saying, oh, yeah, well, they just became skeptical. Really? Well, we've got the actual journal accounts now of the William Claytons that you never would release and let out. We do now know how Joseph Smith lied his 
ass off about polygamy and marrying 14-year-olds and deliberately sending other men away on missions so that he could secretly seduce their wives and daughters. We now have the actual writings of the McClellan Papers, whom you have mislabeled as dirty apostates, darkened minds, uninspired, and so on and so forth. But now we've got their own views and some of your own church essays on teachings of the former prophets that spoke by the power of the Holy Ghost are showing that it's the critics, anti-Mormons and non-Mormons and the professional historians who have been the truth tellers. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Continue imagining that you still have tea and donuts with Jesus on Thursday nights up in the upper rooms of the temple in Salt Lake. That makes us just howl with laughter. We know better now. That's the situation that in October 1841, the people in St. Louis were in. That's where that kind of so called judgmental and incorrect elaboration of their neighbors, calling them prejudice. That's how their prejudice began, was because of the ridiculous way they were treated, just like we have been to the real history. So anyway, now I'm on a diatribe, but it's a very necessary one. That's called cult behavior. Now, you don't like being a cult. I get it. Yeah, it's all good. Then stop acting like one. Gosh, good luck, <laughs> right? I suppose we're supposed to be overwhelmed of your righteousness now because you have $100 billion that you refuse to use for good, but you sit on it for a rainy day fund. Yeah, good luck with that. That doesn't convince us you're all that spiritual either. Well, what can we do to convince you that we're spiritual? Stop being a cult and start becoming spiritual. Uh, perhaps following Jesus's words might help. I don't know. You're the ones that have the inspiration. You tell us. Believing you and not criticizing, even though the criticism is true, doesn't cut the mustard, Dallin. Sorry, that's not how this works. We're in a new age now, right? So... Another comment. I'm kind of surprised that the church news put this out there. Maybe it was just to control the narrative. I get no maybe about it. They are controlling the narrative by automatically poisoning the wells, saying, well, these guys in this court case, they also were prejudiced, and therefore we were victims. Victims. That card's been played too often. We now know based on solid historical materials that we have been reading now for a very long time that you're not necessarily victims except of your own short-sightedness. That's got to suck. Yeah. 
This is just another historical record that paints Joseph and the Mormons as manipulative weirdos. You want to get rid of that public perception? Then stop being manipulative weirdos. I mean, duh. <laughs> you know? Gosh. Just another example of Joseph Smith claiming divine revelation and then abandoning some effort because it wasn't going to work out. Now, that is a very interesting historical perception. Also, we actually have evidence for that, too. It's interesting how God never came and fought for the armies of Israel like he said he would. Even God didn't bother showing up to help the saints in all of their wars, but it eventually came out into a drab, blasé, oh, well, it's going to be for your experience and it'll all be for your good. It maybe was, but what about all those false prophecies in the meantime? Yeah, you wonder why we're skeptical. Gosh. <laughs> I don't know. So, no wonder so many of his inner circle fell away as they realized that he was worse at decision-making than the average person. Boy, that is spot on. 90% of the decisions Joseph Smith made were a horror story. Perhaps the most important one he made that probably helped him the most was to organize councils and say, uh, let's talk this out. Let's work through this. That was one thing he probably did correct. But then the councils themselves became corrupt with his megalomaniac vision of anoint me king of the world and in the next life too, and I shall guarantee all men their religious liberties. But the thing he didn't tell him was, well, I'm also going to be prophet of the only true church as well as king over the only kingdom on the planet. And eventually, if you're going to want our blessing and to remain in this kingdom, you are going to have to become a Mormon. That's what he wouldn't say publicly. But that was the plan in the council. Eventually, their kingdom would break up all of the kingdoms because they claimed it was Daniel's kingdom. Yeah, so that was their intention. It's no wonder when some of the council finally realized the megalomania of what Joseph Smith was doing, and they some of the leaders were anointing each other kings, some of the council did fall away. They're the ones that went and told everybody the truth of what was going on. And it's interesting that the pattern from Joseph Smith was to always smear that person with as many bald-faced lies and heinous accusations as he could. It didn't matter if it was man or woman. With the Sarah Pratt episode, where Joseph Smith tried to seduce Orson Pratt's wife, and she told her husband, and Orson became livid, the first thing Joseph Smith did, 
call her a whore and smear her good name because she refused the illegal, polygamous, sexual advances of Joseph Smith. So he turns around and destroys her reputation. Now, is that supposed to cause me to have faith in the true prophet of Joseph Smith? You got to be kidding me. He did that with everybody who opposed him. John C. Bennett. You do realize that the Nauvoo Expositor, the newspaper that exposed the truth that Joseph Smith had been anointed king, that was true. We now have the evidence. No wonder Boyd K. Packer didn't want it admitted or read. We know he was practicing polygamy and lying to everyone about it. That's true. That's what the newspaper said. It didn't tell any lies. And yet, it was a public nuisance. A public nuisance to Joseph Smith's secret law-breaking activities. With that context, I can agree. Yes, true. But that's not how Joseph Smith put it out to the world. He was saying one thing privately, doing one thing privately, and then in public, oh, what a thing it is to claim I have more than one wife. I have multiple wives when all I can ever find is one wife. And he had already been married to half of the damn Relief Society in the whole freaking town of Nauvoo. <laughs> Total liar. What was it? that caused William Marks and what's his nose? Higby, I believe it was Higby. Law, law. Yeah, what was it that caused them to break with Joseph Smith when he told them about polygamy? And when he was trying to seduce Sidney Rigdon's daughter, Nancy, the 17-year-old. And that just infuriated Sidney Rigdon. So he pulled Rigdon aside and said, hey, uh, you know, I'll let you take three or four women of your own if you'll let me have your daughter. And he goes, oh, <laughs> okay, dad, that's good. It must be a law of God, yes. We're supposed to praise the man who communed with Jehovah when he does stupid shit like that? Really? You're kidding, right? But if you leave all of that heinous, lying, cheating, stealing, illegal. He didn't even have a marriage license, and he was marrying people all over the place. He said, I am above the law. I don't need your state marriage license. I am of God, and God trumps the law of men. Well, that's a claim, but do you have any evidence of that? other than you saying so? 
Well, these people testified that I am of God because the Holy Ghost has told them. Yeah, they also said the same thing about Brigham Young's Adam-God doctrine, but you've thrown that under the bus. They also said the same thing about Joseph Smith's translation of the Egyptian papyri and naming the king in the hieroglyphs in facsimile number three. And none of that's true either. But they all claimed the burning of the bosom and the Holy Ghost was telling them this is a true book of scripture and they canonized it. But what's that got to do with reality? Not a thing, right? There's the problem. And there's where the skepticism and prejudice comes from. Joseph Smith always promised the truth. And then he taught the most outrageous doctrines. He did the most outrageous things. He pissed off absolutely everybody with his stupid politics. He was disgruntled with the United States government, so he formed his own kingdom and became king of it. He reunited the power of church and state together in <laughs> himself. Oh, well, I'll do it righteously. I mean, I'm a prophet. Don't worry about it. Just believe me. I don't believe you. Nice thing about 200 years of hindsight and being able to see the broadest historical context is we now see the charlatanism in so much that it becomes overwhelming. It's not just one or two odd times, and then he learns his lesson and, and becomes righteous. It is the systematic pattern of his career of deceiving everyone. That's why all of the secrecy, the secrecy of the first vision, he only told it when he was forced to. The secrecy of the lack of finances for the bank in Kirtland. The secrecy of how the Book of Mormon was translated. The secrecy of polygamy. The secrecy of the secret kingdom of God and me becoming the king. The secrecy of the second anointing. All this secrecy and the swearing of people to secrecy in order to hide from the law is what caused people to say, you can't trust them. There you go. That's the answer. And we still can't trust you because you're already historically miscontexting this new piece of evidence. <laughs> you're never going to quit, are you, Mormon Church? You never will. We get it. Yeah. You're not getting our trust. No. You wonder why? Well, good luck. Maybe the Holy Ghost will tell you the truth or something. Who knows? I mean, the Holy Ghost tells everybody anything they want the Holy Ghost to tell them so that they can justify themselves in their own actions, just like Joseph Smith did. Do you want proof? I'll name several names. 
Ron and Dan Lafferty is the two foremost. Another one is Chad and Lori Daybell. How many more do you want? Warren Jeffs? I mean, good grief, man. How many would you like me to name? One is too many that I can name several should be spooking you. We don't have any evidence that it does. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Mormon post-facto justification in this is we didn't lose the case. We were persecuted against by antagonists. Well, that narrative is so much baloney once we actually see the overall historical context. Joseph Smith lied about being able to see treasure with his peepstone, and he got people to do all the work for him, digging the treasure, and then, oh, whoops, you didn't slit the dog's throat right, or, uh-oh, one of you did something wrong, and so the treasure slipped further in the earth. Doggone it, he never once acquired the treasure. That is, until he got the gold plates in the Book of Mormon. And then he never shared it like he promised and had covenanted, but he wouldn't let anybody else see it. I mean, how much more do you need before you can see the obvious fraud, right? And yet I do believe that he actually came to love these people he was taking advantage of because he was living with them. They were helping him. He was helping them. He did get enmeshed with them. He did have a spiritual organization that he was trying to build, and it probably went to his head, and he worked best under pressure. That's why he kept doing things that kept bringing people to try to extradite him out of state. He added the charter in Nauvoo so that he couldn't be taken away, and that infuriated people. He was constantly antagonizing everyone and finding ways to get away from it and get away with it. And that's the history of Mormonism. Granted, that's pretty cynical, but it's also very accurate. It's like Hugh Nibley said in the, uh, oh, what was it? Do Religion and History Conflict. I think it's in his, uh, I've got the volume up there somewhere. I think it's in his, uh, it's in one of his texts. The Ancient Statement. No, not The Ancient Statement. His first, uh, the Old Testament, something like that. Do history and religion conflict? Nibley mentioned, he said, the trick with history is you can make history say anything you want. His, uh, his article on controlling the past that was in the improvement era, also uh, 1950s, I believe, early, early to mid-1950s, uh, you can prove with history, that God absolutely hates the Jews. Just depends on which document you select and emphasize. Depends on how you interpret the various histories of the Jews. Who you select, who you leave out, etc. On the other hand, you can 
absolutely fundamentally demonstrate without question that God does love the Jews. And again, depends on which context you build, right? So history can prove anything. I mean, Mormon history proves that, if nothing else. The mythologization of Joseph Smith is one of the great accomplishments of Mormonism. This man is praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Kings will fall at his feet, etc. They made him into a superhero. And none of it's worth a plugged nickel when you get the rest of the narrative that was deliberately left out in order to mythologize him into someone that he never could be. So you've believed and gained testimony of a myth, not a real person. But the real person is so much more fascinating and interesting. And if I can dare say this, inspiring than the mythologized, phonely created, fake Joseph Smith that Mormons worship. And I, I know you're going to cringe on that. There's going to be some Mormons who say, oh, see, backyard professors become an anti-Mormon. We don't worship Joseph Smith. Pff, bullshit. You can't fool us any longer. This has become the church of Joseph Smith. After all, you've decided to put out the Joseph Smith papers, haven't you? You celebrate him and scream about him more than any other. And you certainly emulate the idea, the office of a prophet vastly more than you do concerning anything about the God that you supposedly worship or want to at least. But your lip service is good. It's just that your hearts are far removed from Jesus. Now, does that sound familiar? That's what Joseph Smith was told about all the other churches. But Mormonism has tried very, very hard to become just like all the other churches. We don't ever hear any sermons anymore that we are peculiar people. We are different. We are, we are weird, and we're proud of it. We do wear the white shirts and ties, and we don't smoke and drink and cuss. We don't watch R-rated movies. They loved to make themselves as absolutely positively weirdo as they could because we are in the world but not of the world. No, 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 no. We are above such wickedness. Man, I remember hearing testimonies in fast and testimony meeting on that. It is so wonderful, my brothers and sisters, to be among people who are so much more righteous than the entire rest of the world. What a great people. And yet, who wants to go live in Salt Lake City or Utah, the fraud capital of the nation? Because they have been bred into believing that they can trust the priesthood without thinking 
or without examining or without testing, if a brother comes to you and offers you a deal, we're going to be rich beyond your wildest imagination. Just come and invest in this silver coinage with me, would you? I promise it'll be fantastic. Well, the fraudster gets hundreds of millions and 25 years in jail when he gets caught. The rest of you get burned. Now you know what the early Mormons felt like because Joseph Smith was doing the same thing, just not quite that egregious. He was claiming it was a revelation from God and that it was always their fault when it didn't happen, but he was there trying to do it with them, at least token-wise, and they were building their city after city after city. He was receiving revelation, yes, this, this is going to work, this will prevail, and then when it didn't, well, you know, so-and-so sipped on a Diet Coke, and therefore all of Israel gets to be punished. So let's move out to the next swamp and try to build it up there instead. On and on and on and on. Not ending. And yet the minute a historic new document comes out, oh, it's everybody else who has all the prejudices and biases. We're innocent. He was a good man trying to help the saints, and therefore he was wrong. He was not robbed. Now, they didn't say that. I'm saying that is sort of a crack against them. He was not robbed. He had a debt to pay, and he had apparently refused to pay it, and they had to get it out of him any way they could. Now, interestingly, when John C. Bennett showed up, that's when Joseph Smith dropped the case. Do you think it's because he was going to expose the polygamy? Or the kingdom, the, the council of the 50, the anointing of the kings or whatever. Yeah, is that why it was more important to drop the case? Yeah. It's interesting that everybody who tried to seduce women in Nauvoo illegally, <laughs> as if polygamy was legal, but everybody who tried to do it kept using Joseph Smith. Oh, well, it's okay as long as it's kept secret. Joseph Smith taught me that doctrine. When in point of, and then Joseph Smith would smear that man's name and put him in a church court and excommunicate him for doing exactly what he was doing. But he could not be caught. It was not allowed to expose Joseph Smith, just you guys, because I am a committee unto myself. He said that in the Council of 50. He said, when you guys try to figure this out and you can't, when you write the Constitution, give it over to me and I will correct it by revelation and then we will move forward because I am a committee unto myself. I am so great and grand, I have more to boast than of than any other man. I, forgive me, but what else can we say except ego frickin' maniac? Give us another word, you know, to use. Give us any other conclusion to come to, man. We've got dozens of statements on that. When someone accused Joseph Smith 
in a truthful manner, he would sometimes slap him around, turn around, and physically kick him out of the city. Why the violent reaction? Because he did those things in secret, and he did not want to be exposed. Well, isn't that the Book of Mormon idea of secret combinations and lyings and stealings and whoredoms? But not Joseph Smith! Yeah, Joseph Smith. And he got everybody else involved also. Those who were so involved could not afford to get caught and thrown in jail. So, of course, they stuck with him. And so he, of course, honored them by what? Giving them higher and higher positions in the church. That's how it always has worked. Always. Even up to today. Always. It's astonishing when you see how the operation works. Anyway, I had a whole boatload of crap I was going to read, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to be able to get to all of it. I apologize. Yeah, there's too much. I've been ranting and raving. Uh, I want to see if I can find this one little part though. Yeah, in the early, this is in the uh, American Crucifixion by Beam. In the early years of the church, almost every one of his close confidants apostatized, usually in a dramatic falling out with the prophet. Apostle Orson Hyde was excommunicated in May 1839 and restored to the church in October. When Joseph made advances to Orson Pratt's wife, while his loyal apostle was proselyting in England, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles excommunicated both of the Prats for kicking up a fuss. Now, at that point, you have to have your WTF moment, don't you? And then he slandered them. Yeah. He accused Oliver Cowdery, who caught Joseph Smith with Fanny Alger in a dirty, nasty little affair, an affair. He accused Joseph Smith of adultery, and Joseph Smith demanded Cowdery reword that because he did not commit adultery. Well, the reason Joseph Smith did not want to be known as an adulterer is because he'd secretly married her already. So you can't commit adultery with your wife, but you can't commit adultery with your second wife either. But he didn't want anyone else to know he had married her, but he insisted he did not commit adultery. He immediately turned around and began slandering Oliver Cowdery of what? Committing adultery and falsely accusing him. Well, once you can relabel something to your own liking, polygamy is not adultery. I just married a second woman. Adultery is with an unmarried woman. I didn't have sex with the unmarried woman. I married her first. <laughs> and Joseph Smith actually thought that was justifiable. Then he turned around and smeared Oliver Cowder's name to get him excommunicated to silence him. That was Joseph Smith's pattern. 
Either try to beat the snot out of someone, intimidate them, or accuse them and smear their name with the same problems, crimes, and issues that you yourself are guilty of. There's a lot of evidence on that. In the rest of the story that Mormonism has taken out in their whitewashed version and that we are now just getting to be able to see. Had you been intelligent and read the Tanners in the 1960s and 70s, you would already know this. I didn't. I believed the church in my teenage years. Don't read the Anno-Mormon literatures. They're dark. They're evil. They want to harm your God-given testimony. I mean, the brainwash is so thick, you can cut it with a knife, right? But that's how they taught us. And sure enough, we stupidly listened. Boy, the follies of youth, they say, right? Joseph had begun to think of his theodemocracy of Nauvoo in imperial terms, and that's what bothered everyone. Smith had grander plans. In March 1844, he created the Secret Council of 50 to rule over the still secret kingdom of God. Now, why does God insist that his kingdom remain a big bad secret? Because, of course, God isn't doing anything. Joseph Smith's the one doing it. So in order for the man to have power, you have to sneak it up onto the world. See, I mean, technically speaking, given what we are told about God, if God wanted to set up his kingdom, he could just simply come down anywhere on earth and build his big castle and set up his kingdom, get on TV and say, hey, everybody, God here, I'm back. I've set up my kingdom. Why don't y'all come and join? And I'll give you my law and do righteous. That never happens, does it? Of course not. You know why? Because the kingdom of God and God is very necessary for limited power man to produce in order to elevate himself into a station of power. That's why. If it was really important for God that his kingdom show up, the earth never, ever would have been without it in the first place. It would have been the first thing he put on earth and never let it be ruined. Duh. <laughs> you know, you put a little thought into this stuff and you can begin seeing the charade very, very quickly, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, and, the, and then again, and this is in the book American Crucifixion. This is on page uh, 44, and I'm just skipping and choosing a couple of topics to, to talk to you about. The Charter's third and most controversial provision was its distinctive court system. Now, this is the Nauvoo Charter that Joseph Smith set up the uh, city government, and, and he had a group of people help him set up the judges and the lawyers and the court etc. The powers, the civic and civil powers, the Nauvoo Legion, the military powers, and the religious powers. Joseph Smith was involved in all of that setting up so that they could protect themselves from their enemies that they made 
The Charter's third and most controversial provision was its distinctive court system. It effectively merged the executive and judiciary branches of local government. As mayor, Joseph sat on the city council and also served as chief justice of the municipal court. The associate justices were the city council members and four aldermen. The mayor had exclusive jurisdiction in all cases arising under the ordinance of the corporation and reviewed all lower court decisions as well, rendered by magistrates or justices of the peace. With very rare exceptions, all city councilmen, justices, and aldermen were Mormons. Of course. Joseph's court arrogated to itself a broad power of habeas corpus in all cases arising under the ordinances of the city council, in its common law origins, habeas corpus, surrender the body, protected individuals from capricious imprisonment by state or local authorities. In Nauvoo, it was enforced indiscriminately to ensure that most Mormons could never be tried by an outsider court. Although often used to protect Joseph, from the many writs and summonses flying about him, the law likewise meant that a lapsed saint charged with cattle thieving in neighboring Adams County could go free in Nauvoo. And that became a pretty difficult issue for them to offer. Thomas Sharp noted toward the end of the Nauvoo reign of the kingdom that the theme of how military these people are becoming. Joseph Smith used to strut on his white horse with his plumed hat and his military regalia and his fine four-foot sword, and he would run up and down in front of the troops, telling them that they are the army of Israel, and we will trample our enemies down, and we will never be defeated, etc., etc. You are to protect me at all cost. Offer me your lives, and I shall offer you your religious freedom, and so on and so forth. And the newspapers noticed. They said, you know, these guys now have three cannons. They've armed the Legion. It's a pretty big thing. He's constantly practicing with them. They're becoming pretty militaristic, and that spooked the hell out of everybody around them. They didn't trade with their neighbors. They made their own goods and traded only with Mormons and Mormons, etc., they weren't very good neighbors. Everything they say or do seems to breathe the spirit of military tactics. Truly, fighting must be a part of the creed of these saints, wrote William Sharp. Well, that is where part of the fear, the prejudice, and terror of the neighbors came concerning their weird neighbors, the Mormons. The Mormons themselves were the problem. But of course, they screamed the persecution card, right? So, Sharp was one of the first to realize that the saints' rapid immigration into Nauvoo had created a powerful voting block as well, capable of ruling the country. If Joe Smith is to control the majority of votes in our country, are we not, in effect, the subject of a despot.
Now that's what he looked like to the outsiders. And the church today says that's their prejudice. But now we have the inside notes in the Joseph Smith papers on the Council of the 50, and it was much worse than even what his neighbors thought. We now know they were, in effect, going to try world dominion. That's no longer an anti-Mormon argument. The church handed us the evidence itself in a valid publication. The Joseph Smith Papers Administrative Records, the Council of the 50 in 2015. So now we know the actual thinking was exactly what the so-called anti-Mormons were supposedly prejudiced against, when in point of fact, had Joseph Smith become the president of the United States, that is exactly what he was intending on doing. Amazing, isn't it? Pretty interesting. So anyway, more on Sharp here. I want to get to the point to where he... Yeah, yeah, this is it. Page 94, American Crucifixion. As he often did, and he documents this in many, many places. I've got several of them marked. I don't have time to read them all, but in, in the process of preparing for this, I put a whole bunch of tabs. <laughs> Most of my books now are getting tabs in them. Crime and he's costing me $200 to find the post-its. <laughs> and I only give you about one-fifth of 1% 1 of all the information because I only have about an hour and a half, and I'm already past the hour and a half right now. Holy cow, it's not fair how fast time goes. But page 94, as he often did when confronted by female accusers of some of his sexual problems that he himself brought on himself— this is not anti-Mormon. For God's sake, open your minds and change your narrative, you silly chapel Mormons. It's time to wake up and smell the roses. Joseph Smith smeared the female accusers. publicly accusing her of adultery with another man. He went so far as to suggest that Pratt marry a virgin. Yeah, he told Orson Pratt to divorce his wife because she was out there spreading rumors about him grabbing her boobs. When in fact, that's exactly what the dumbass did. And then he accused her and he told Orson to divorce her because she was putting bad ideas in your head about me, Orson. Well, you think? <laughs> no kidding, Joe. Putting bad ideas in her husband's head. Wow. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> the guy's he's just astonishing. Orson Pratt fled his home and temporarily lost his mind. Yeah, he did. Brigham Young spent several days with his disturbed colleague whose mind became so darkened by the influence of statements of his wife because she told him the truth. But his mind became darkened. You can't trust the Mormons. 
to tell you the truth. Can you? They continue to blame the victim, don't they? Right now, today. That's how it is. Yeah. Then Joseph tried to seduce the wife of his second counselor, William Law. William Law was the one that ended up making the Nauvoo Expositor, which Joseph Smith destroyed illegally and stupidly because it taught the truth and it exposed all of his secret combinations, his wickedness. But Law was the apostate and deserved to have the press destroyed. And that's what cost Joseph Smith his life. Yeah. Very interesting, though, that pattern of Joseph Smith always accusing someone else of the problem he was guilty of. Very prominent, man. Oh, it's it's huge in, uh, hold on, oh, it's huge in this one. Holy crap, George D. Smith, Nauvoo Polygamy. You want an eye-opening text? Holy nightmare, Batman. Whew. That book is a shelf breaker and it's not small 700 pages pretty impressive research again none of this was ever included in mormon history under boyd k packer or any of the church correlation committee marky peterson and all those none of this yet they call this anti-mormon but what it is, is it's the actual history of what happened that the official Mormon church left out. But we're the ones who are the critics and with the darkened minds and all. The Melchizedek priesthood totem lying historians are the right ones. And we're supposed to swallow that swill. And yet they're miffed when we express skepticism of their testimonies of what really happened and how true Joseph Smith was. Duh. <laughs> it's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, pretty amazing. D. Michael Quinn, Early Mormonism in the Magic World. Now, this is the second edition. I kept the first. I also have the first edition. I lost the cover, but so I've got both editions, the 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 original and then the new and improved. This one was the response to all of the dumb bullshit arguments of the apologists out of farms against this, which just happens to again. <laughs> Have you noticed a pattern? All of this stuff is the stuff that again, the church decided not to put into its history because they wanted to build our faith. Can you say idiot loud enough? Can you say dumb methodology with enough emphasis yet? How many more subjects did they do stuff like that with? Name one that they didn't do that with. Have you ever noticed that there is not one subject in all of Mormonism from 1805 to 2022 in June 
that is not controversial, that does not have some double-edged sword, and that does not have some kind of a historical verification problem involved with it, how come every cotton-picking thing is a flippin' problem and testimony breaker? Have you ever stopped to think about that? That's pretty shocking when you do. I promise. <laughs> it's not for the faint in heart. And then once again, Joseph Smith's New York reputation re-examined, where this guy shows the Mormon historian whitewasher Richard Lloyd Anderson manipulated the evidence in order to show that no, 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 Joseph Smith wasn't guilty of nothing. He was a true prophet. He was a righteous guy. Quit picking on Joseph Smith. Oh, can't we give Brother Joseph a break? Hell no. We aren't going to give Brother Joseph a break any more than we're going to give any brother a break. We want the actual history. And if you're guilty, then it sucks to be you. We hold the church to a higher standard be historically, morally, philosophically, religiously, because they want to impinge upon our conscience that they really are better than we riffraff, poor, spiritually starving people. They have the higher revelations. They get the second anointings. They get the callings in the church. They are the special chosen of the church. Their knowledge is greater because of the Holy Ghost. They give the prophecies. They have the gifts of the Spirit. Only they are allowed to guide the church. Only what they say is to become scripture. On and on and on and on. And then they get angry if we point out the problems and have skepticism. Sucks to be you, right? For Pete's sake, if you're going to claim to be the higher being, then my advice is you're going to be that. You can't act like it and then pout, shout, hold your breath, stomp your feet, and turn blue in the face when you're caught being a typical asshole. Sucks to be you when that happens, and it happens all the time. That's how it works, right? We don't claim higher authority like the leaders do because they've tried to mythologize themselves into superheroes. They want to be worshipped. They have put themselves in between us and God, and we don't see the reason to have a middleman. And that makes them angry. Well, let's take a look at your history and see why we stopped having faith in you. We never should have in the first place anyway. 
So it goes on and on and on. So, uh, look, I've gone a minute 45, man. Wow, 93 of us. Holy cow. Okay. Uh, l- let me read just a couple more ideas out of this American crucifixion. Uh, page 97. Law told his wife, Jane, that he would take the matter up with the prophet who would surely renounce this adulterous blasphemy. Don't count on it, Jane predicted, as she had every reason to know. Joseph had already attempted to seduce her, and when her accusation later became public, he also denounced her as a whore. You notice the pattern? Every time a woman says, no, I'm already married, you frickin' idiot, then he smears her name. He did that with the guys, too, if they wouldn't accept his doctrines. But don't worry, Joseph Smith's a true prophet and a very holy man. Joseph Smith's a freaking asshole. It's no wonder his brother William wants in a fight because they were arguing, and Joseph Smith threatened to take him before the church court in a way to intimidate him. William Law just beat the absolute shit out of him. It's a hilarious account. Joseph Smith, all tough and cocky, and he got whooped. William didn't take it. Neither will we, right? Yeah. When Foster and Law were building lumber and buying lumber shipped down the Mississippi in Mormon-controlled Nauvoo, Joseph Smith got so jealous that they were getting the profits that he then told them they should be putting that money into the temple fund for the church. And they said, but we own the mill. We're doing the work, and so we're building the buildings. We ought to be the ones to get the money. And Joseph Smith got so mad at him that he threatened him. He said, no, you got to give that to the church. And they said, no, we don't. This is our enterprise too. I mean, we're building the city up. We're helping people build houses. We don't have to give the freaking money to you. And Joseph Smith tried to force them to do that. Whoa. That's on page 99 and 100 and 101. Uh, in American Crucifixion. You really ought to read this book. It's it's quite an eye-opener. Of course, Daniel C. Peterson and Lou Misley are going to poo-poo it and say, oh, they got it all wrong. You know, know, the Mormon apologists, the old farms guard, they're going to say, oh, it's so unfortunate that that book was written. Just like they say that about the TV series on the Under the Banner of Heaven about the Lafferty's and their heinous Holy Ghost-driven murders, right? RFM has a great podcast on their interview of Dan Lafferty that'll just shock you. No, it's not unfortunate that this came out. Dan Peterson is wrong in that regard, but he is correct that it is unfortunate for a Holy Ghost-based faith-promoting testimony-building experience. It demonstrates that the Mormon church itself doesn't have a freaking clue about the Holy Ghost. That's what the Lafferty's prove. And I would add Chad and Lori Daybell down there in Rexburg, Idaho. The same problem. The Holy Ghost is causing all the problems. Well, they don't have the real Holy Ghost, only we do. 
Do you have an outside way for us to confirm that? Yes, prayer and the Holy Ghost will tell you. But what if the prayer tells me like it did Dan Lafferty to kill someone? Do you have to do it because God says so? That's spooky. That is really freaking spooky. You better rethink that through, you Mormons who think you're being led truthfully by the Holy Ghost. Man, you better do some research. There's some spooky counter evidence now through actual actions of people that really scare you. Yeah. The expositor editors assailed Joseph. This is on page 115 of American Crucifixion. The expositor editors also assailed Joseph's temporal ambitions, citing his attempt at political power and influence, which we verily believe to be preposterous and absurd. We do not believe that God ever raised up a prophet to Christianize the world by political schemes and intrigue. Now, where would they get those ideas? Perhaps based on what Joseph Smith was doing? See, the Mormon church calls the expositor the anti-Mormon press. But were they an anti-Mormon press or were they just simply saying what Joseph Smith was doing in secret against the Book of Mormon Council of Secret Combinations and whoredoms and murders, something they were guilty of themselves? Who's the bad guy here? Is it any wonder the neighbors did not trust the Mormons? Of course not. That makes perfect sense. They also spread rumors of Smith's financial skullduggery, which had been reported as far away as New York. Is it any wonder people were skeptical about the validity of the testimonies of Hiram Smith, who was in cahoots with Joseph Smith? That's not prejudice. They were experiencing this from the Mormons themselves and how their neighbors were being treated through the Mormons' really quirky combinations of religion, politics, and history. The Mormons were undoing the separation of powers that the American Constitution set up in order to get away from what Joseph Smith was trying to become, a king who had all power, both secular and religious. That's what Joseph Smith said he wanted. Is it any wonder people killed him? Seriously. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, and that's more on the Nauvoo City Charter. We've read all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is Institute, page 118. Another illustration, another beautiful illustration of the constant lying of Joseph Smith. Joseph waxed purple. In other words, he was in a rage on the subject of Austin Cowell's affidavit concerning the secret revelation on polygamy. Plural wifery had nothing to do with the present time, Joseph Smith insisted. The mayor said he had never preached the revelation in private as he had in public, had not taught it to the anointed in the church in private, 
which many confirmed. Now, the members of the High Council would have known this was poppycock, as several of them had already taken plural wives with Joseph's secret blessing. It's just ugly. It's just ugly. And Mormons wonder why people don't trust them. Fraud capital of the nation? <laughs> well, we have the Melchizedek priesthood. We can't lead you astray. God will remove us. You're going to believe that, huh? Good luck. And then finally, let me see this one last item. Yeah, page 148. The governor listened to Joseph's emissaries and immediately summoned Joseph and other members of the city council to Carthage to stand trial after he had destroyed the printing press, the Nauvoo Expositor, which the men had bought with their own money, $2,000. Your conduct in the destruction of the press, he said, was a very gross outrage upon the laws and the liberties of the people, which... It was. It may have been full of libels, but this did not authorize you to destroy it. There are many newspapers in the state which have been wrongfully abusing me for more than a year, but Ford weren't, wasn't destroying those presses, was he? No, but when it comes to Joseph Smith, the holy prophet, the one who is above the law and a committee unto himself, you're not allowed to contradict him or expose him or to tell the truth about him. Or he felt he had the right to silence you or smear your name or excommunicate you. And this is the man who said, I guarantee everyone, no matter what religion, their religious liberties. Hell, he didn't even give his own people their religious liberties. It was fine if you agreed with him, but if you disagreed with him, your ass was grass. He was coming after you, hook, line, and sinker, hook and claw. He was going to smear your name and destroy your reputation, take everything you owned, and hopefully hang you. That's some loving prophet, right? <laughs> That's the Joseph Smith we read in the new narrative of all of the other history that Mormonism has left out for the last 150 years. And it's not a pretty picture. It's certainly not a faith-promoting picture, is it? Oh, of course not. No. Hand over all your property to the church or suffer the consequences with Joseph Smith's concept in his day. You think I'm kidding? Read about uh, Oliver Cowdery and Republican thinking, Republicanism thinking and rough stone rolling, uh, 100 and... What page is that? Uh, I can't. Yeah, the Fanny Alger thing is a nightmare, man. But uh, Yeah, and he constantly told, well, here's Richard Bushman, 332. This is Rough Stone Rolling. Oh, did I just lose the page? I did. 
far from flourishing as their prophet had foretold, the saints were caught in the downward spiral of personal losses and narrowing opportunities with the Kirtland Bank issue. That's on page 332. David Patton, the leading apostle, raised so many insulting questions, Joseph Smith slapped him on the face and kicked him out of the yard. Boy, what a way to respond. And he wondered why he had enemies. Duh. <laughs> wow. You know, back on page 330. Uh, yeah, Grandison Newell, a lifelong enemy of the Mormons, entered a suit against Joseph for issuing bills of credit illegally. The charterless Kirtland Safety Society fell under the ban of an 1816 Ohio law forbidding private companies to issue money. Joseph was fined $1,000, and he added it to his huge debt, which he probably never paid off. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I found it. Woohoo! I must be inspired. This is a Bushman Rough Stone Rolling on page uh, 348. Yeah, this is good. This is too good to lose. This was another falling out, another issue that Joseph Smith had with uh, Oliver Cowdery, and Oliver Cowdery had with Joseph Smith and the High Council. When everyone in Nauvoo was so desperate for money because the man who sold them the land had absconded with all of their money, he was supposed to pay to the someone back east. Anyway, it was a fiasco. And Joseph Smith was left with the bill. And so all of the saints were supposed to just give up the land to pay off the mortgage rent and lose all of their property that they had been building on, something to that effect. And Cowdery was charged with selling his lands in Jackson County. But this was contrary to the revelations a sign he was withdrawing from the economic order of the church. See, Joseph Smith made everyone join the church as a means of acquiring all of their property. And if they kept some of their private property and sold it and made extra money more than Joseph Smith, he got mad and said, you're supposed to give it to the church. In other words, to me, but to the church, right? Well, he, Cowdery, was unwilling, the letter went on, to subject himself to any ecclesiastical authority or pretended revelation. He based his actions on the three great principles of English liberty, a word Joseph Smith tried to utilize. Liberty to Joseph Smith was, believe my revelations or be damned. Here was liberty to Oliver Cowdery, the right of personal security, the right of personal liberty, and the right of private property. This attempt to control me in my temporal interest, I conceive to be a disposition to take from me a portion of my constitutional privileges and inherent rights. Cowdery was speaking as a citizen of a republic rather than as a member of the church, the kingdom of God. Yeah, because the kingdom of God took everything the poor man owned in the name of God, and guess who benefited? Wasn't Oliver, right? Wow! I mean, total communistic control, right? 
Oliver Cowdery got fed up and said, bullshit, I'm done with that crap. And he got in big trouble for it. That's when he was slandered about being an adulterer, etc. So anyway, this goes on and on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, let me. Oh, this is too good. Gosh, dang, I just about. Okay, hold on. What page is this? Page 353 of Rough Stone Rolling. This is really good. John Coral. The clash between Mormonism and Republicanism was brilliantly summed up in an exchange between John Coral and Joseph Smith late in the summer. For some time, George Robinson noted, Coral had been out of step, out of step. They still say that today in the church, right? Oh, well, you're out of step. You know, follow the covenant path, you know. With the great wheel, which is propelled by the arm of the great Jehovah. Yeah, see, you're out of line with God. It's your fault. You're the problem. You're the apostate. It's your mind that's darkened. It's your spirit that's failing. Because you didn't give me everything you own. You don't believe everything I say. And by the way, would you mind if I have your 14-year-old daughter too? God told me I could. Man, is it any wonder these people did not trust the Mormons, right? That's not prejudice. That's the experience of how the, the Mormons were acting and thinking and believing and living. So, Coral posed a question. Must an individual sacrifice his autonomy to the revealed will of God, or should he decide for himself in all things? In Republican theory, the individual was supreme. In the kingdom of God, was an individual required to sacrifice that autonomy? According to Robinson, Coral, who had accepted Joseph Smith's revelations, while serving in the church, said he will always say what he pleases, for he says he is a Republican, and as such he will do, say, act, and believe what he pleases, to which Robinson then added, added he said, let the reader mark such republicanism as this, that a man should oppose his own judgment to the judgment of God, and at the same time profess to believe in the same God. The question could not have been more forcefully stated. How could a believer in God put his own will and judgment up against the will and judgment of God? On the other hand, how could an independent Republican yield his judgment to another man, even one speaking for God? The exchange laid bare the source of Mormonism's conflict with democratic society. Mormons believed they were building Zion according to God's commands. To apostates and outsiders, they looked like mindless zealots obeying a tyrant because they saw that the revelations of Joseph Smith put him above the law. Wow. That's, oh, I'm all, 
I'm over two hours. Why didn't you guys tell me? For of course, I haven't been paying attention. Anyway, I just I just wanted to bring this out. I didn't really do a whole lot of examining of this new court record stuff, but but I'm trying to explain the reason why the church continually playing the victim card of, oh, poor us, you guys are just prejudiced and biased against us who are trying to be holy. No, that doesn't just arise because of your religion. Uh, there are multitudinous factors involved all of them have been more or less either downplayed or eliminated out of the history of Mormonism, and we are very damn suspicious now of anything Mormonism teaches for those reasons. They're doing decent for now with the Joseph Smith papers, to at least give us a chance to examine this for ourselves instead of accepting their whitewashed version, which they have been caught with their pants down enough now, thanks to the work of the Tanners, the Vogels, the Metcalfs, the Bill Reels, the Radio Free Mormons, and now the Backyard Professor, the Paul Osbournes, all of the rest of us who have said, that's enough trying to pull the wool over our eyes. We want to know. And now the church is forced, just like it did of giving the blacks the priesthood and of giving up polygamy because of social convention and the internet, they're finally forced to begin telling the truth. And then they still yet want us to turn around and accept them and sustain them in their callings of prophets, seers, and revelators. Of what? Lies? Why in the hell put anybody between you and God if you believe in God? I just don't see the point anymore. So anyway, oh, looks like there's uh, 97 of us here. Oh, 44 likes. Thank you, you guys. You're very kind. Anyway, and thank you for all your donations. I appreciate that. I, I haven't been paying attention. So those of you who've donated your time, talents, and money to the building up of the kingdom, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I started acting like Joseph Smith. Did his spirit fall upon me like it did Brigham Young? Did I look and sound like him for a minute there? Come on! I oh, Whoops, I should have taken off my glasses. There, now, confess, I look like Joseph Smith, right? Yeah, yeah, no hair on the chin. Long, powerful nose, even though it is crooked. Oh, wait, I'm too old. I'm way older than he ever was. I've got gray hair. No, okay, forget the Joseph Smith lookalike. All right, anyway, you guys, I hope you've had fun. Uh Oh, thank you, LC. Welcome to all of those who I haven't been able to welcome. Cherish, thank you for coming in. Ruth Smart, Richard Peckjack. Uh, you're you guys are very welcome. Oh, Huff Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> you thought you felt the spirit, but it was just gas. I've done that quite a bit. So what you have to do is quit farting around and start seeking the spirit in earnest. Get it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Stop it. All right. David Pugh, yeah. Uh, do I still believe in God? What is my belief nowadays? That's a great question, David Pugh. I view myself as an agnostic. I, I don't know, but I'm open to the possibility. Uh, basically, I am studying uh, 
I, you know, you could call it spirituality, but I don't know if it's that or not. I, I'm not sure. I like I like studying the ancient mysteries for whatever reason. They're fantastically interesting to me, and I do like comparing. And I will do some videos on the uh, on the relationship of the Mormon Temple Endowment and Freemasonry. I've had people say they want to hear about that, and I definitely want to explore that in some really good depth uh, because I am a Freemason. I'm very inactive at this point, but I've been there for quite a few years, but I am a 32nd degree Mason still, so far as I know. Uh, so, But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm open to the possibility. I'm somewhat seeking, uh, but I honestly don't know. And so, and I'm actually, it's very pleasant in life to be able to feel comfortable saying, you know, I don't know. I'll look into it some more, sure. But uh, I don't, I mean, those who want to be Mormon, you know, in a way, I kind of got to imitate Joseph Smith. Whatever you believe is whatever you believe. And I, I have no reason to try to dissuade you one way or the other. That's, I could care less. That's not my, uh, that's not my purpose. So anyway. Oh, thank you, Patty Cake. That's very nice. Lorena, thank you. Mike Weist. Very good to see you, my friend. LC. Yeah. Yeah. To deconstruct. That actually, in a way, that's what we're doing, isn't it? Uh, we have to deconstruct the I hate to call it false, but uh, give me any other word that I can use the false construction of the false narrative, right? Otherwise, what's the point of the Joseph Smith papers and them bragging and crowing like crazy and making whole documentaries? At last, we now present all of the papers of Joseph Smith. Well, why the hell have you been doing that all along? You see, so... Yeah, they get credit for it, but, you know, you kind of got to say, well, you should have done that a hell of a long time ago, right? It's always been so secret, secret. Why the secrecy? Yeah. Unless, of course, you're doing something illegal or wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Give me any other choice to come to, right? I, see, I'm not even a conspiracy nut. I, you know, I don't go around studying all these crazy conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy thing is, in Mormonism, look, we've had a conspiracy, man. Isn't that crazy? Wow. That's kind of nutsoid, right? Oh, Richard Petchak, Cherish, thank you for coming. Good to see you. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to scroll up on this. If it knocks me out, I apologize. I love y'all. I appreciate all of you. Next week, don't forget, Wednesday night, Mormonism Live again. Uh, I know John DeLynn is still active furiously with his Mormon stories. Those are always good to look at. Maven had some fantastic uh, discussions on her story. Uh, and then next Sunday, I will be back, if not earlier, if I come across something you know, that's really unique and interesting or whatever. I might just do a special unannounced live. I have no idea. You don't have to wait up for it. It's just me. I mean, I'm bore you to death, you know. It's two hours and I'm still going. I'm bored the heck out of all of you. So I'm going to try to go back up in the comments. If this knocks me out, I apologize. I will see you next week. Otherwise, I'm going to keep trying to talk to you a little bit because I love talking to you guys. I just got to find the button here. Okay, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Here we go. I can go back up. Look at some of these. Coffee drinking, not a sin. Welcome. Lashram32, welcome. Clark, 